0: We're going to turn our attention now to the back middle portion of our worship guides where our sermon scripture reading can be found. I'll invite David forward to the mic where he's going to read the text for us. Um, Let me just make a couple of preliminary notes before we, we get into it. But as you notice, we're taking a little break from our Gospel According to Luke series to celebrate this week and next two unique days in the Christian calendar, Ascension Sunday and Pentecost Sunday. Maybe those don't mean very much to you, but hopefully over the next two Sundays they will. Um, These two days commemorate two very significant moments in Jesus' ministry. We read in chapter 1 of Acts um, this morning about Christ's ascension back to heaven, uh, the end of his earthly ministry and what is the beginning of his heavenly ministry. Christ's ascension happened 40 days after his resurrection, uh, Luke and Acts tells us. That's 40 days after Easter. So technically, if you're counting, it was Ascension Thursday, this past Thursday, but you know, churches bump it up to the Sunday so we can celebrate together. Uh, Ten days after Jesus' ascension, the book of Acts tells us, and we'll read next week, was the Jewish festival of Pentecost. And on that day, Jesus kept his promise to his disciples. He sent the Holy Spirit to indwell and to empower his church now and forever. And maybe... Um, maybe you noticed a few weeks ago uh, Mother's Day came and went without so much as a, a passing comment from me. Maybe, maybe you were a little bit surprised. There's no acknowledgement. There was no Instagram post. We didn't have a bucket of flowers available for moms in the congregation. There was, there was no note uh, in the bulletin. there's no special scripture reading which used the word mother in it. Um, and you will be no doubt disappointed in the coming weeks when we don't have a natal day service. Um, We won't acknowledge Movember uh, during worship. Uh, We're eerily silent when it comes to Squirrel Appreciation Day or National Nurses Day. It's no knock against you, but maybe you're wondering what gives. Why celebrate these in the evangelical church is often two kind of obscure holidays, but not these other days? Well, first, as you might have noticed from our songs and from our readings, worship on the Lord's Day is about the Lord. It's about Him. It's His day. It's all about focusing on who He is and what He has done for His people during the reformation of the church in the 16th century, the church calendar was filled. It was jam-packed with feasts and fast days and seasons that uh, seemed to be about everything but Jesus. I don't know if you've ever worked in an office setting where there's always a cake in the break room, and you're like, what is, what is this celebration? Oh, it's, it's Holly's birthday. Oh, happy birthday. And then the next day there's a cake, or there's, you know, there's more food. Oh, it's, uh, Stan is retiring uh, today. Oh, what about this? Oh, it's, it's National Office Administration Day, so we got a cake for all the office workers. And when you looked at the church calendar of the 16th century, it was exactly like that. Every single day was a holiday, or a fast, or a feast of some sort. Many of them were commemorating important biblical figures. There were lots of days that celebrated Mary in various ways, or celebrating dearly departed saints with awesome names like Saint Agnes or St. Norbert, uh, or to memorialize biblical events. There is an actual celebration of the beheading of John the Baptist. Um, I don't know what what, what that looks like. um, Or there's extended seasons which celebrate um, seasons that were developed in the early church, like Lent or Advent. But the reformers, to refocus the church on what we're supposed to focus on, on the good news of Jesus Christ and Him crucified for our sins and for our salvation, they, they decided to do one or two things with the calendar. Option number one was just to cut everything, everything out of the church calendar, to not celebrate anything whatever except for 52 days in the year, the Lord's Day, the Sunday. Uh, that is the only celebration we have. And that's a, and that's a good option, nothing, nothing against that. But the other option was to slim down the church calendar and celebrate the main five movements of Christ's ministry uh, called the five evangelical feast days or the five gospel feast days. And maybe you know some of these. Uh, Jesus' birth, Christmas. Jesus' suffering and death, Good Friday. Uh, his resurrection, Easter. His ascension back into heaven, uh, ascension. And his sending the Holy Spirit to his church, Pentecost. And so why does the church celebrate? Why are we celebrating ascension and Pentecost, but not all of these other you know, kind of fun holidays that we have? Well, again, first, celebrating on the Lord's Day and remembering these five days seasonally keeps our focus where it ought to be, on Jesus Christ. But a second reason is, is that um, it's as we make much of Jesus together, as we celebrate him, that we actually learn to properly honor and love others and to celebrate these other holidays and occasions rightly. If we look at Jesus, we focus on him, we actually learn what it means to properly honor our mothers and fathers. Jesus shows us what it's like to faithfully and, and wisely enjoy long weekend celebrations with friends. And so if we center our focus on Christ, we actually learn how to celebrate these holidays appropriately, to see them as very good gifts from God, but not like anchoring events in the life of, uh, of the church or us personally. And so as we, as we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we learn to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so in our text this morning, we're finally getting to the text, um, we're looking at a prayer that was written by the Apostle Paul in the first century for a church that was in the port city of Ephesus. Uh, That's in uh, in modern-day Turkey, but at the time it was in uh, the Roman Republic. And in this prayer, Paul celebrates Jesus' ascension. He makes a big deal of it because in Jesus' ascension uh, to heaven, the church receives hope, receives richness, and receives power. David.
1: Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. It's the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us again. Father, we ask that by your spirit, you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to your word to your people this morning. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, Many of us are familiar with the word succession uh, but not a lot of us are probably very familiar with the word accession, uh, succession and accession. Succession is the process when a position or a title or an office is passed down the chain from one person to another. There's a popular TV show uh, out called Succession which deals with this very theme. If you're familiar with the, with the royal family, if you follow them on Instagram, you, you know that Prince Charles will one day succeed Queen Elizabeth and he's just going to be handed this thing. It's, it's, it's irrespective of his character or his deservedness because succession just deals with who's next in line. But accession is, is a different thing. Accession describes when someone is lifted up to a new rank. Accession is when a new person acquires a new title or a new power. Uh, for example, when you read the book of Genesis, you read about Joseph, Joseph who is in prison at the lowest possible state that he could be. And one day, he acceded to the position of prime minister. He was lifted up by the Pharaoh in Egypt. And this wasn't a succession. He wasn't in line for this position. It was an accession. He was, he was lifted up, and a new title and new authority was granted to him. This is how you have to look at Jesus' ascension. Jesus' ascension was an accession. Forty days after Jesus was raised from the dead, Paul says in verse 20 in our text, that God the Father raised Jesus and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Paul celebrates Jesus' ascension to heaven because the ascension is a new stage in Jesus' ministry. Jesus has been given new titles, new roles, new authority. And for Christians living in ancient Ephesus or modern Christians living here in Halifax, we never got to be around Jesus in his earthly ministry. We never got to see the risen Christ. And if you're like me, sometimes that feels like a bit of a loss. You're you're like, uh, when Jesus ascended to heaven, we actually we we lost something of import because He's no longer here with us. But when you read Paul's prayer, he wants the Ephesian church to see that and and, and to believe and to celebrate and to live in light of Jesus' ascension. He says this this is an important element of your faith. Jesus' ascension promises to His church hope and richness and power. More so now. even when jesus was on earth with us and that's the that's the big idea of this sermon we'll return to over and over again jesus's ascension to heaven promises to his church hope richness and power in a unique way in a a special way if you look at verses 15 through 23 the entirety of our text if you were to see it in the greek you'd see there is no period (laughs) it is one long run-on sentence in the English Standard Version, the translation into the English that we're using, they do a pretty good job. I don't know if you noticed, there was only, uh, David didn't gasp for breath as he was reading, but he, he really ought to have, because the first period didn't come until after verse 21. Uh, but really, there is no period there. In the Greek, it's just one long, run-on sentence. And Paul is essentially, he's just tripping over himself, And excitement as he as he rejoices as he prays for the Ephesian church. I don't know if you've ever talked to a kid who's returned from Disneyland or the fair or something really exciting, and they and they just are tripping over their thoughts. They're saying, "Oh, you know, we got candy, then we went on the ride, and then I I threw up, and then we went, you know, over here and we ate some more, and then I got a clown, I saw a balloon." There's just all of this excitement that's coming, out. and that's kind of you know what the Ephesian church is saying to Paul: Would you take a breath, man? Just relax. But Paul's attitude here is obviously one of being overjoyed because of what the ascension means to the Ephesian church. And he's concerned that they might not get how exciting the ascension is. But he wants them to see it. He wants them to see the ascension in a new light. Now, Look at verse 15. Paul has heard of the Ephesians' faith in Jesus and their love for the saints. That's a way of saying the church or the people of God. And a little later, you'll see that Paul talks about the hope. That these ephesians have and here uh if you're if you're keeping track with christian bingo he's hit it he's hit faith hope and love right faith hope and love these are three central aspects of the christian life faith in jesus hope in god's care for us and a love for the church in verse 16 the ephesians faith hope and their love is a cause for paul he says to just constantly give thanks to god in prayer paul is an apostle that's that's kind of his that's his job He's a traveling evangelist, He he's a church planter, church starter, he's a prophetic type of guy. And for him to see a church uh, growing in a city like Ephesus, uh, to see a place where people are flourishing in the Christian faith, filled with hope and with love, he cannot stop giving thanks to God for this. And it is a good reminder as we look at Paul's letter that we ought to be giving thanks for the people around us who have faith and hope and love in God. This is, this is a miracle. This is an amazing thing. This is a wonderful thing. This is something that comes from God to bless this world, to bless cities like Halifax, and so we should be overjoyed, thankful um, for what God has done amongst, amongst us. While Paul acknowledges uh, the Ephesians' genuine faith, while he gives thanks for it, he doesn't doubt it, he also wants them to mature in their faith, to grow. There's actually more content to their faith, uh, ways to increase their hope, uh, to help them to abound in love that he wants them to, to understand, for their eyes to be opened. If you look at verses 17 through 18, you see that he wants the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, to give them the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of their heart enlightened. I don't know if you noticed again, but we've hit Christian bingo in a different way. Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinity, right? What does Paul want God to do? He prays that all the fullness of God, all the mystery of God would be at work in the lives of Christians. He wants those who are saved, through the Son, to see by the Spirit uh, what the Father has in store for them. And he wants them to see it more clearly than they have. He's, again, he's not doubting the genuineness of their faith, but he's simply saying that a Christian's eyes can get blurry, can need correction. There might be some things in the Christian life that they don't yet see. Even a, even a Christian's heart, someone who's been in the church for a long time, can, can be darkened and need a lamp to come in, can need a fresh work of the Spirit. And maybe you've been a Christian for a very long time and you've never once thought about the ascension. Like you've never once considered how it's supposed to touch your life and, and move you to, to new works of obedience or love uh, or, or, or brings wisdom to you. Or perhaps you're a Christian and you know intellectually that Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father, that he, that he has all power somehow in heaven, and yet you're often deeply, deeply discouraged. You're filled with doubt and fear about God's goodness and his care for you, his ability uh, to love and to care for you. Paul wants these Ephesians to see something in the ascension. That's what he wants for you today, too. There are three things in particular, if you look at your text, that he, that he pushes the Ephesians to see. If you look at the second half of verse 18, uh, this, is, this is the first thing he says. He prays that they would know the hope, the hope to which God has called them. Next, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Uh, verse 19 what is the immeasurable power toward us who believe again that's our theme for today jesus ascension promises hope richness and power to the church the first two things um the hope to which we're called the rich inheritance that belong to christians these are both speaking to future realities that are meant to impact our present life so both both the hope that we're to have the richness, the rich inheritance that's in store for us, these are both future realities which are meant to impact us today in the present. Hope and inheritance, they both have their fulfillment in the future when we finally see the Lord, when we're with him. But as we see these things, as we believe and hold on to them today, um, they're game changers for us. And we see this uh, in play in Luke's gospel when we see Jesus talking to his people who today are poor or hungry or weeping or hated and despised by their communities, and he tells them, you are blessed. You ought to rejoice. He's not telling them to rejoice simply because they're poor or because they're hungry or because they're they're weeping or they're hated or they're persecuted, but because Jesus is aware of the richness and the glorious inheritance that's coming their way, he knows that these things are a certainty. He knows that though they suffer now, they can have hope because these realities are fixed and certain. There's a story of, of, a, of a poor man who lived in a village many miles outside of a great city. And one day he received a letter, and inside that letter he learned that he, he had inherited an immense fortune beyond tell. And he was to travel into that city where it was being kept and safeguarded for him. And so this man saddled up his horse and his cart, and he, he headed off towards the city. But on the way to the city, the wheels of his cart fell off. Now how should this man react? How should he understand his present suffering, his present difficulties, in light of his coming inheritance? Well, he should see his, 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 his unfortunate situation in a very different light. He will suffer, but he'll suffer very differently. He will say, this is not permanent. This isn't my life forever. This isn't final. There's something better coming, something, sure, I don't need to rage at my cart. I don't need to be without hope that all is lost because all of my needs have been taken care of. I I, I need to continue my journey. That's all I need to do to receive this great reward. Uh, That's the question of how he should see his suffering. Now the question of how should he see his future inheritance uh, and and his future hope in light of his current suffering. He has to see this, this, this immense inheritance that's waiting for him in the city is untouched by his sufferings because it's being kept safe for him, and nothing will ultimately prevent him from receiving it. Jesus has ascended, friends. He has risen to heaven to secure for you your hope, uh, to, to secure for you a rich inheritance that will be yours forever. Do you believe this? Do you live with an expectant hope, even though now you suffer for a while, that this is a sure thing because of who Jesus is and where he is seated? So Paul, again, he wants them to see two things so far. See their hope, see their future inheritance. But this third part this is, uh, begins in verse 19. This is where Paul really starts to cook. And things get a little complicated, so you'll have to pay attention. He wants the Ephesians to have their eyes enlightened so that they can know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. Again, Jesus' ascension to heaven promises to his church hope, richness, and power. Paul does some thought stacking, so you need to keep your nose in the text. Um, In verse 20, he begins to describe this great power, this immeasurable greatness of power that's towards them. Um, He says, first, it's the same power which raised Jesus from the dead. That's the kind of power it is. And second, it's the same power which seated Jesus at God's right hand. That's referring to Jesus' ascension or to his accession. And then Paul Paul stacks further on top of this idea. Again, you got to keep on looking. Look at verse 21. He describes just how high Christ ascended when he ascended. Verse 21. He is now far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. So the question is how powerful is the power that is now at work in you who believe? This is a power that has overcome death itself. The power that is for you who believe is the one that elevated Jesus from the grave, that elevated Jesus from the lowest parts uh, of the earth, from being a servant, from being a convicted and executed criminal, and, and lifted him up to the very highest place in all of heaven and on earth, and gave him all the power and authority over all names that can be possibly named. That's the power that is for you who believe. Now and forever, Jesus on high. In Luke's gospel, we've seen people being released from demonic forces, demonic oppression, uh, circumstances and realities in their lives that are just too powerful for them, things that are wreaking havoc in them. And this is because of this reality, this proper anthropology, or this uh, proper understanding of the universe we live in. Uh, The cosmology tells us that, uh, that we live in a world that there is a constant cosmic and unseen spiritual battle taking place. This is the universe we live in. There are beings, there are forces at work that oppose God and all of his works that indeed have a measure of power and authority in this world. And we're all born into this. We don't opt in or out of it. We're trapped in a network of evil, uh, slaves to sin and death, to destruction, to pain. And these things are beyond our control. They're outside of our powers to resist on our own. I don't know if you've felt any of this in your own life or you've seen it in the lives of others. If you're experiencing a kind of suffering uh, or sin that you can't shake, that your life is out of control, that the world is an evil place where evil things are happening all of the time. This is the confidence that Paul wants to give us. Whatever temptation or trial you're facing, Jesus is greater. Whatever person or power that is seeking harm, your harm or or harm to the nations, Jesus is stronger. It's not you. It's not those with more power than you or more wealth than you. It's not demonic forces or angelic beings. It's not fate that controls this world that we're in. Jesus is, and he can be trusted. This is something to sing about, something to rejoice in. The psalmist says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Uh, Look at the last part. Look at verses 22 through 23. Paul wants the people in Ephesus to know how intimately Jesus is connected with his people. Though Jesus has ascended to the highest place, though he is the head over all things, and all things are under his feet, the church is his own dear body. I don't know if you know anyone who's gotten like a promotion or become a, a minor celebrity, and, the, and they, they don't have time for, for the lower people. <laughs> don't have time for you because I'm, I'm now elevated. Uh, but this is not the case with Jesus. The people of God aren't some distant, you know, uh, uh, people that he used to hang out with, but, but now he's, you know, he, he's, he's in better circles. Uh, or that he rules at a distance with disinterest. No, we are described as his own body. He fills us with all of his fullness. Uh, Again, to hear that somebody has risen to a high rank, uh, when we hear about the absolute power that Jesus has, the highest rank in the universe, this may not be comfort to you if you do not trust him. If he is someone in your mind like you or I, uh, this kind of power or authority would corrupt us. It wouldn't be good for us we would serve ourselves, not others. But Jesus' authority, his new power as, as the highest person in the universe, this is a very good thing. He uses his power and authority to fill all in all, Paul says. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he didn't use his new authority and power to serve his own no needs. No, just like in his earthly life, he came to serve and not to be served. The full one filled others jesus's ascension to heaven promises hope and richness even as we suffer now but it also offers power to the church we celebrate ascension sunday because we often forget uh, where jesus is today what he is doing and what this means for the church and every week as we recite the apostles creed this is actually something that we hold to be a central tenant of our faith we confess we build our faith on this reality i believe in jesus christ He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Let's end it with this. Many of us have been steeped in a vision of power and authority that's radically different from what we see in Jesus Christ in the pages of the gospel here in Ephesians. Because when anyone has real power or authority, um, they flex it. They use it to dominate, uh, to to boss people around. And, and, And we may be tempted to think, Okay, if Jesus has power, uh, if he has total authority over all things, maybe he won't use it to, to bully or push me around, but perhaps he could use his power a little bit to, to, uh, to fix my life, <laughs> to make things better for me. Why doesn't he use his power uh, to end my suffering or the suffering of those around me, uh, to, to give me what he wants? If he's so strong, why doesn't he just kind of satisfy uh, my needs and give me what he wants, give me what I want? But this is what we see in Jesus. Though he has all power and all authority, he lived a life of suffering. From beginning to end of his earthly ministry, Jesus lived a life of suffering. He was hated, and he was mocked, and he was betrayed. He was lonely. He was poor. He was tempted with sin. Finally, he suffered and he died a humiliating and isolating death. But this is the very way that King Jesus conquered. Jesus didn't defeat his enemies by steamrolling them through the raw exercise of power and dominion. Christ conquered through his death, through his suffering. Jesus' enemies were defeated by and through Jesus' sufferings, not in spite of them. On the other side of Jesus' suffering was his ascension, was the resurrection and power. Jesus experienced resurrection power. He ascended to the highest place in heaven and on earth, but only did so after his suffering and his death. And so now Christ, the wounded king, the long-suffering one, he comes to his people who are suffering. He who bore a cross for us and for our salvation, he comes to a church which often suffers, which often feels the weight of sin and death on them, and he gives them this same power, not which avoided suffering and death, but which endured and faced whatever came. Jesus' ascension to heaven promises hope and richness to his church, but also power for us who are walking towards the heavenly city to an inheritance of life and peace in the presence of God, which was won for us by Christ, which is being kept safe by Christ. And though we suffer for a little while, we have hope that Jesus, the ascended King, will keep it safe for us until the end. So now may you see Jesus' ascension as an accession uh, that, uh, that it is this Jesus and no other who has been lifted up to the place of highest authority. May you celebrate and rejoice in this as good news. May the, heart, the eyes of your heart be enlightened to see it, that you may have faith and hope and love and mature and grow and depend on it. May you suffer well, knowing that Christ the King who suffered is now ascended to the throne and that he is for you. Let me pray. Father in heaven, this Ascension Sunday, we ask that you would open the eyes of our heart, that you would give us this, uh, this, this gift of an ever-maturing, ever-growing faith and hope and love for you. We praise you, Jesus, for being high above all rules and authorities. Help us to trust you uh, that you are for us. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.